the true your baron? As a matter of fact, it is. I don't take that sort of thing seriously, then. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm your host, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Nathaniel Fraser McGee the Third Esquire, <laughs> with a sir. Of of the Upper East Side McGee's? Of the Upper West Side McGee's, as a matter of fact. <laughs> um, how's it going, Ben? Now, why are you talking like that? Oh, I am talking like that because today we're covering a very haughty film called Metropolitan, where... We watch tuxedoed youths in Manhattan lay about and be annoying, basically. <laughs> That's all the movie is. But I kind of loved it. <laughs> anyway, let's, let's introduce Back to the Movies, the podcast. Back to the Movies is a podcast where Ben and I are going back to certain years of cinema this is the first inaugural season, and the year that we've chosen is 1990. So we are going back to 1990. We are re-watching or watching for the first time a lot of the movies that came out that year and just diving deep into them, getting into the history of how they were created, getting into what we thought of the movies themselves and sort of their impact and legacy on the 90s and on movies today. So, Ben, today's movie was Metropolitan, directed by... <laughs> Whit Stillman. That is a very... You gotta get that H yes. in there. Whit. Very haughty name there. I'm gonna use the word haughty a lot today. Did you see this movie before we watched it for the podcast? I did. This was actually one of the movies that got me excited about 1990. Oh, this is another one. This, Yeah, this is one that when we, I was going down the list and I saw it on there, I, I was pretty pumped. Because I'd only seen it once before, but I remembered loving it then. Now I was back in film school. Oh, um, you went to film school, did you, Benjamin? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's never come up uh-huh. before. Oh, it, uh, what school did you go to? Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, the fine ivy-covered institution of Chapman University. Uh, no, it was a great school. Um, and while I was there, and I was really coming into my own as a cinephile, I discovered and became obsessed with the Criterion Collection. I think most film-savvy listeners will probably be familiar with that product line but it's basically just a boutique series of once laser discs then dvds now blu-rays covering some of the most important works in film history all over the globe and uh in college that was that was a gold stamp for me if if it was in the criterion collection i wanted to see it regardless of what it was about or who made it or what i knew about it and that's how i discovered metropolitan Mm. I think I was browsing the the film school DVD library oh, and it was okay. there and 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 I picked it up and and sat down and watched it and was so felt so at home in the world of these effete pompous quasi intellectuals <laughs> yeah who are desperately trying to find meaning in their lives I was curious did, did would you want to go to one of these gatherings absolutely not no really they weren't partying that hard They were kind of just hanging out, having very intellectual conversations. I was like, maybe Ben would really like this. It's true. When I was watching it this time with Grace, I turned to her about like the third or fourth time. Charlie, the one with the glasses, goes on about 
the state of the upper class society. And I'm like, that that was me at parties. Dude, I put in my notes for this movie, you can scroll down, but I put Charlie is Ben (laughs) in college. I was, what did I say? I said, Charlie is, he's, he's reminding me of Ben in college. He's a philosophizer and a good lad, (laughs) but won't stay up past 10 o'clock. Probably. (laughs) That was me all over. No, the problem with the parties depicted here is that they go into like, the early morning and I, and I like to go to bed early. Yeah. You would not make it to like the beginning of the party because these parties seem to be starting at like midnight already. Um, I have heard of this movie over the years and it's always been in the watch list. It's a New York city movie. It's about young people in New York and I'd always wanted to watch it, but again, saved it for this podcast. So this was my first time watching nice. it today. What were your initial thoughts? I was honestly a little worried about watching it. Even though I had heard about it and had wanted to watch it for a long time, I've actually watched a couple other satires of bourgeoisie recently, and they always kind of rub me the wrong way. The most famous one, a very storied Criterion release, I'm sure, is Rules of the Game. It's like a 30s movie about annoying rich people partying. Wait a second. Nat, are you about to... To insult rules of the game, one of my all-time favorite movies by one of my all-time favorite directors. Yes, I'm about to take it down. Uh, <laughs> it just didn't do it for me. I, I I didn't connect to any of the characters, and I found it kind of tiresome. And sure, same for a movie that they reference in this movie, Discreet Charms of the Bourgeoisie. It, it's another sure. takedown of of these annoying rich people that think they're smart and are really just full of shit. And I just, a lot of these movies I worry about because they sort of just are making fun of them without characterizing them at all. And I loved this movie because even though the people were so annoying and so rich and so off-putting in this movie, you still manage to like them. It's really the magic trick of the movie. And I, and I, this is my hot take, so I'm sorry to spoil it now, but when you're first introduced to all these people, you can't stand them. But by the time Nick is wishing them goodbye on the train station and they go back to Jane's house and she tells them that they're all that's left. It's really sad. And I don't know how the movie does it because we shouldn't care that much about these people. They are the worst examples of privilege. Well, I think you care because they're people. They are people no matter what. They have souls and they have good qualities and they have terrible qualities, but the movie is humanizing them in a way that a lot of these types of movies don't do. See, that makes me surprised that you said you didn't like rules of the game because I actually think it has a very similar arc. The humor is a little bit more old fashioned, certainly, and the characters are a little bit broader, but it goes for the same kind of pathos by the end. I need to rewatch it uh, because it was a tough watch first time. (laughs) Uh I wanted to take a quick tangent and just talk about the Criterion Collection uh, because this was a, an early film in the collection and and a pretty, I think, a pretty prominent one. One of their first major veins of cinema that they tapped it was like Japanese samurai movies and American independent cinema. Yeah, they, they kind of got a lock on Wes Anderson pretty early on. All of his movies would come out Criterion. That's how I got into Criterion because of the Wes Anderson releases. He gets the immediate release which is legendary and while i was watching this movie about an exclusionary elitist society 
And I was thinking about my relationship to this product line that I consider very important to me and that I've always really loved and that I felt has broadened my, my film experience. I had kind of like some second thoughts. I had some, some, some niggling doubts about the role of the Criterion Collection in Cinephilia. And I just kind of wanted to unpack that for a second. All right, let's hear it. So I think that Cinephilia has changed a lot in the last 20 years. Okay. And this is all anecdotal and maybe people will disagree, but I feel like when I was young, if somebody was really into movies in Vermont, that meant that they were able to like name drop somebody like James Cameron or Martin Scorsese, but like, you know, big American filmmakers, but they just had an awareness of the people behind the scenes that wasn't widespread before the internet age, but something happened. And I think something like the criterion collection is a part of it where today in our circles, cinephilia is much more about having like a broader global and historical perspective on cinema. And it's not somebody like James Cameron, but somebody like Whit Stillman being able to say that name and know who you're talking about. And that's a pretty big shift, but it also makes this, what we're doing, what people are listening to like a little bit less accessible to other people. How is that? It just raises the barrier of entry. We've talked about Whit Stillman like he's just somebody you should know. He's only made three to four movies that people care about. And almost all of them were independent releases about rich white people. (laughs) He has basically no people of color in any of his movies. He never really deals with uh, uh, the issues of the impoverished or the disenfranchised. Like, I don't know that this is something that we should be celebrating. Mm, Okay. I think... You might be taking it a little too seriously. And I also don't think that cinephilia necessarily has changed. It's just gotten to a place where there's a very broad range of cinephilia. There's still plenty of people out there who are self-proclaimed cinephiles, but their entry point is the James Cameron, Martin Scorsese. And they would never watch a Criterion movie. And that's fine. It's not for everyone. It's not... Criterion especially is not accessible cinema. And sometimes it's just straight up work to watch a Criterion movie. (laughs) You hear good things about it and you watch it and you're like, I hated it. That was like me with Rules of the Game. I was like, okay, Rules of the Game. This is like top 50 movie of all time. And I sit down and I watch it. I'm like, ugh, I did not enjoy that. But you do it because you love movies and you want to broaden your horizons of movies. I think that Criterion has in ways, made it easier to become a cinephile. It's providing a path to people, young people, old people, whoever, and a pretty nicely packaged path that, yes, costs money. It's a barrier for entry for sure. But if you can afford to go see a movie, you can afford to buy a Criterion disc. So it's there's always going to be money involved with movies, no matter what. Sure. Even young Martin Scorsese had to pay a dime to go see some matinee (laughs) in Little Italy. That's never going to change. So I think that you can't look at Criterion as this exclusive club that's not letting anyone in. It's letting anyone in that has the money to buy a Criterion. And it's letting anyone in Mm -hmm. that's willing to make a cool, challenging movie that Criterion deems worthy. And they also have Wes Anderson movies, which is like the most basic fucking cinephile shit 
There is. <laughs> That's Cinephilia 101. Film Buffery 101. You got to watch a few uh, Wes Anderson movies. Yeah, especially in this, in, in our age, if you're our age, like that was sort of a lot of people our age entry into the world of like, ooh, I'm a cinephile. Uh, and I love it for that. So I am a huge Criterion yeah. fan. I buy their discs. I subscribe to their streaming service. I pay lots of money to them because I think what they're doing is amazing. And I think that they're making people more passionate about cinema. I mean, there's obviously an elitism element to it, but I also don't think that they are they have their heads up their asses. Right. They, they're not only putting out Metropolitan. They're putting out lots of different shit. And if they weren't putting out Metropolitan, nobody else would. Yeah. Certainly not, you know, two decades ago when they did. Yeah. And I also just think if you're going to spend money on something, I'd rather you spend money on a Criterion than like on COD skins for your <laughs> for your Warzone operator. Like That's the Nat Venn diagram <laughs> yeah. right there. I'd rather they get the money. Well, I'm glad you said elitism, because that's a good transition back into the movie that we're talking about today. Yes. A movie uh, uh, obsessed with the lives and destinies of the elite. Let's talk about Metropolitan and about the filmmaker, Whit Stillman. One of the things that makes this movie so endearing is that it is obviously a labor of love. This thing was shot on a shoestring budget by a first-time cast and a first-time director and writer just desperately trying to get their art out there and succeeding at every turn because of the strength of their convictions and not the depths of their pocketbooks, which is kind of a funny contrast to the characters in the film. Seriously. Whit Stillman's the director. This is his first film. He had some background in TV before this. This is his first time directing a film. And he goes on to make a few other pretty good films, important movies, Barcelona and Last Days of Disco sort of form a trilogy with this one where they're all comedies of manners. And then he recently had Love and Friendship, um, a Kate Beckinsale movie that came out a few years back, which I heard was good, but I didn't see it. Very Jane Austen, kind of like this movie, right? Yes, that was an actual adaptation um, and set in period instead of this, which is very Jane Austen, but completely modernized. And I read a little bit of background. It sounds like his background is sort of in line with the people you see in this movie like very east coast very haughty east coast elite went to uh an ivy league school as did many of the cast members as well he sometimes gets pigeonholed as like the wasp woody allen which you could certainly see there's like the jazz music and the uh focus on you know conversational drama the title cards too like the pace of the movie a sense of sort of nostalgia that I think is one of Woody Allen's big selling points. Uh, but I definitely think that the Jane Austen comparison is a better one because Woody Allen is like deeply concerned with the problems of Woody Allen. And uh, I think Whit Stillman's a little bit more focused on like a societal shift and that in that way sort of aligns more with, with some bigger thinkers. Yeah. And one thing I found interesting about the budget of this movie was that originally he wanted it to take place in a distant time, but a little more concretely. Like he wanted it to take place in the 50s or 60s or something, which would make way more sense with the debutante stuff. But I sort of enjoyed that he got constrained by the budget and had to make it take place vaguely in 1990, but there's a couple little elements that are 
bringing it backwards in time a little bit, but I kind of like that. Yeah, he talks about like the checkered cabs being sort of a callback. Yeah, because those checkered cabs were not a common thing at, by 1990 in, in the city. But like, yeah, it just it just sort of makes it a little more magical and a little more accessible and not too concerned with like, oh, the year is 1961 and blah, like it would have bogged it down, I think. But this movie was scraping by. In order to get the pittance of a budget he was able to get, uh, Whitstone had to sell something called his insider rights to his apartment. Now, you're a New Yorker. Do you know what that means? It basically means if you're renting an apartment and they're turning it into a condo, usually you get the offer that you can buy the apartment way below the market rate. So what he was doing was basically pushing his rental to someone else so they could buy it way below the market rate. And he makes a profit. They buy it for way cheaper than it would be if it was on the market. So he's basically just selling his right to buy the apartment. He's, he's sort of selling his apartment, but he just gets to live there until they decide to convert it into condos. Well, I don't know if that, I think it's when they decide to convert it to condos. Because otherwise the person could give him a huge sum of money and then they never convert it to condo. So I think it was already, you're getting that offer. So eventually he would have to leave that apartment because he had to fund this movie. It's a little bit more complicated, but I just love the idea that he sold his home to finance the film. But in classic New York fashion, he didn't even own the home. He's just renting it. <laughs> right. What, what the hell? A lot of the stuff's donated. Locations were all like friends' apartments um, or like parents of the cast, their apartments. Most of the costumes were donated. It's interesting, though, because he's kind of older for a first movie. He's like 33 or 34 years old or 37, I think. He's, he's Yeah. So yeah. I wonder how he met all of these 20-something actors and convinced them. Yeah, it was it was it was an open casting call. And supposedly they got like huge turnout. And a lot of the the actors have like stories about how they were like, well, you know, there were hundreds of other people there. And I thought I would just leave because there was no way I was going to get the part. But uh, they got paid basically nothing. One of them said he thinks they got paid twenty dollars a day. Clearly not a union, not a union gig. That is well under the, the, the standard quote, I would think. Um, and it's like basically all night shoots during winter time. This movie must have been just like a nightmare. No money, no time. Everybody's just muddling their way through it. And once they finally film it, they can't get it distributed. They get rejected from basically every major film festival, including like Sundance, which they probably would have seen as a big possibility because that is just when Sundance is starting to emerge. Imagine trying to sell this movie to a general audience. <laughs> just a bunch of rich kids, but they don't do anything cool. They just talk. Yeah. It's a bunch of rich kids who sort of misunderstand philosophy and have tangled love lives. But they do get picked up. They do get picked up. The film is chosen by something called the, the, the Museum of Modern Arts New Artist New Films Series. Um, and because of that, they then get accepted into the Cannes Film Festival, which had launched Spike Lee just a, a, a few years earlier, which he's got to have it, which was seen as a big, big deal. And... Finally, New Line decides to purchase it for distribution. They get kind of lucky. There was one member of the Sundance board who wanted to screen the movie at Sundance and was outvoted. And he gets hired by New Line in the intervening years to be their head of acquisitions. And then as soon as he's there, he's like, we're going to get this little movie here. Um, but there's like a world where this movie never got seen. 
where it just lived in Whit Stillman's closet, and he went back to his TV gig, and that was the end of it. Good on him. Got it done. I just, I love that kind of filmmaking, you know, because I feel like it translates into what you see. Yeah, it's a passion project, and I think that speaks to kind of the empathy that the movie has. It reminds me of, of Swingers in, in more ways than one, where they just kind of went sure. out and made the movie that they wanted to make. I have another Swingers comparison for, for this movie coming up, so stay tuned. <laughs> That's a good comparison. Like, Swingers is like the slacker version of this. Or like the young L.A. actor with no money version. Yeah. Because, yeah. I'd say slacker is kind of the slacker version of this. That's that's true. I was just thinking that like, you know, Dazed and Confused, all those like hangout movies. But this one has a very unique and specific atmosphere, thanks to Stillman's writing, which I think is phenomenal. And the performances, which are all really good at like placing you in this environment. So let's talk about the movie itself. Metropolitan. Yeah, I don't think there's much point in trying to like break this down by the plot. There's just, there's not really a lot of it. And it, it mostly just involves people hanging out in apartments and talking to each other. The, the big premise is you've got this kid named Tom who accidentally falls in with this group of Upper East Side rich kids when they think that they stole his cab. And to be polite, they invite him to their after dance party. But he's kind of tangentially related to them. He's clearly been in the same circles as them before. He, uh, his parents were divorced and that left him and his mom sort of destitute, um, or at least uh, a lesser off, but he was in their circle previously. And it's really just about him working his way in and the friendships that develop over this one winter break between prep school semesters and, uh, um, the relationships that form and break apart and the, existential crises that you feel when you are, you know, 20 years old and don't know what the hell you're supposed to do with your life. <laughs> Why was he in a tux at the beginning? Did they ever explain that? They were at some dance. So he went to the dance without them. And then they got in a cab and took him to their house. They say something like he was sitting at the table behind them and didn't talk. To okay. Anybody. But they all come out of like the Plaza hotel or whatever hotel that is. Fun fact. All those exterior shots they were able to get because I didn't know this, but buildings in New York don't own the right to their facades. Oh. So anyone can film or photograph them and then use those films and photographs. I think that's changed a little bit, though, because I, th I think the new World Trade Center, you can't photograph you or they own anything you photograph or something because corporate America is just taking over the world. They didn't like that exchange. I know we're saying that the plotting isn't too dense but for a movie that's just about people hanging out i thought it did a really good job of letting you keep track of the characters and who's supposed to be coming and what is going on with their social life i was never lost and i feel like a lot of times in movies like these i immediately forget who the characters are they were all in the same clothes too this but the movie has the perfect amount of characters that you don't really lose track of what's going on, which I think is a huge strength of this movie because I could see a different version of this movie where for the first 45 minutes, I think that Tom and Nick are the same person or I don't see the difference between Audrey and Jane, but it just does a great job of characterizing everyone really quickly. I think a lot of it comes down to Stillman's writing. I wanted to talk about this. So I'm glad you brought this up. 
where it's it's crazy within the first hour of the movie how many scenes we have that are functionally the same. Yeah. The group are in an apartment. Charlie is talking about the fate of the upper class. Tom is talking about the value of socialism versus capitalism. Nick's being an asshole. And, you know, Audrey is pining after Tom and whatnot. But there is both a very clear progression to the scenes and subtle differentiation and a really excellent use of one of the tools of profluence, a term that we talked about much, much earlier on the podcast, where every scene does just enough to set up the scene that follows so that you never have to reorient yourself. Right. It's really a masterclass in that specific skill, which is something movies have to do well in order to work. And it's really hard to pull off and make it as subtle as it is in this film. That's one of the problems I had with rules of the game is that I just couldn't keep track of everyone. And it makes you start resenting the movie a little bit because you're lost. And again, I have to watch the movie again, but on first viewing, it's an important viewing, first viewing. So I really appreciated that. All right. I was thinking that we could just sort of break down some of the major elements in the movie that we've already started to touch on a little bit um, and just sort of have discussions about them. The first and most obvious and important one is the, the, the UB society, the, the, the upper class social debutante season salon culture life that is being depicted here. Nat, you are from New York. Yes. Do you have any experience with this? This something like this? No, I think that this is definitely a leftover from Whit Stillman's youth. He would have been about this age in like the early seventies, which seems like a perfect time for like the death of the debutante balls from like the forties and fifties and sixties. It's it's it seems like a very early Mad Men era type of thing. Yeah, that I feel like by the time of like. Vietnam was basically over and they do still exist today, but for a while people thought they were going to totally die out and now they've kind of become like an Instagram rich people situation. So you can still go to one if you want, but it's not what it used to be. I suppose if a listener hasn't seen the movie, like how would you describe a debutante ball in the debutante season, which is so central to this movie? It, it basically just feels like, a young person's country club in a city setting where they rent out these luxurious ballrooms and they all dress up in tuxedos and gowns and go to these dances where they're dancing traditional. What do they do? The cha-cha at one point. Like it's all, everything's very dressed up. It's, I'd say the closest comparison would be like a beauty pageant in a way. It's, I mean, it's like a coming of age ceremony. I was actually thinking of something like a bar mitzvah or like a quinceanera or something like that. But there's no reason. There's no reason for it other than like it's the time of the year. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an introduction into an adult social life for these teenagers who are about to make that transition themselves. It's like, it's like a formal way of saying, this person is now available to be courted. They call the boys escorts for the girls. Yes. So it's very yeah. weird, and I don't have any actual experience. This is in a strata that I have not touched. Um, I will say this. I have spent some time in like social circles in this geographical area with, sure. some, with, with a good deal of money. And I would say that from my experience... The most authentic part of this is the Rick Von Sloker part of it, which is 
Von Sloniker. Von Sloniker, which is like sort of the nihilistic rich. And that party at the end in the Hamptons, I've seen that party before where it's like two shirtless dudes listening to music, probably on drugs. And like the girls are like sort of awkward and not even sure why they're hanging out with these guys. That was very real to me. And it was sort of refreshing to see our heroes be like rescuing them from that fucking situation. (laughs) So the movie doesn't really posit that as the future of this world, but it's interestingly placed in the film where it's the last vestige of high society that we see that we leave New York and we leave and, and, and this group of friends are breaking apart and we don't see any more, you know, salon parties. And it's just this, you know, like you said, this like, you know, panties on the lawn, pounding music and drugs, uh, shirtless dudes. But still in the hand, it's still rich people in the Hamptons. But in the Hamptons. And I don't know if Whitman is saying, like, if he's tapped into the fact that that's sort of where the culture may be going, because he presents it more as like a difference between, you know, new money and old money. The titled aristocrats, as Nick likes to call them, and the uh, the non-titled aristocrats. It's all the same, man. Rich people. <laughs> It's crazy how this movie functions both as a pretty effective satire and takedown of these people while still being utterly romantic about that lifestyle. It's pretty invested in the lifestyle and doesn't necessarily always hate it for what it is. It's it, it like it it sees its flaws but is willing to forgive them because it sees the good parts of it as well. Grace really didn't like this movie and I think your enjoyment will hinge on whether or not you buy into that romanticism or not. Well, the other part that I really liked about it is just no matter how annoying they are and how rich they are, they're all very well-spoken people. They're not idiots. And I'd much rather watch a bunch of smart people talking, even if they're totally full of shit, than people just sitting around doing drugs in a basement in the Hamptons. So just for that, you kind of fall in love with them. Anyone that can present themselves as smart is someone who's pretty watchable to me. I mean, I could watch somebody debating, you know, uh, uh, Fourier and socialism and the decline of the upper classes, like, for hours. Let's try going to a party, pretty much any party in America at this point. And start asking them what they think of 40A. <laughs> we go to like a rave. The music's pounding. And I'm like, hey. Yeah. Have you read Charles 40A? Like there's something pretty. For, for me being a snob. There's something pretty admirable. About just being able to name drop 40A. And like the entire room is like. Oh yes 40A. Like I, I kind of want to live in that world. Maybe a little bit. But also it's annoying. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not proud of the fact that I'm definitely a Charlie. <laughs> let's let's talk about the characters in turn because uh, uh, you know they are all pretty well developed and and I think they all have their own charms and their own faults. Yeah, first there's Tom, who's the outsider. He's like the main character. He's played by a guy named Edward Clements. All these actors were basically first time actors with no credit experience, and very few of them go on to have major careers after this. Some of them show up in Stillman's other films. A couple of them have like TV careers. Uh, I think the actress who plays Audrey probably has the other biggest credit. She was in Age of Innocence. Oh. But really none of them go on to have particularly large careers. So this is this. 
This is it. This is their their calling card. I think Tom is annoying. <laughs> he's super intellectual. Really, he's why if he is so not into this, why is he hanging out with these people? I guess that's part of the charm of the movie is that he's an outsider and he doesn't necessarily like it, but I think deep down he likes it. Why else would he keep going? He's a really interesting perspective character because he is so conceited at the beginning of the movie that it's hard to sympathize with him. I think Stillman does a good job pacing out the revelations about his family life. And you begin to see where subconscious resentments have turned into conscious philosophy. And so by the end, I'm really on board with Tom, but it's a slow march. He's initially probably like my least favorite of the group, a group of people who present themselves as superior. He's the one acting superior to them, which is not a good look. But I love when Nick takes him down. You mean like in the hallway when Nick's like, I know you have limited resources. I'm going to buy you a suit. This is the best you're going to get. Stop acting so high and mighty. And he makes such great sense. He's like, you can go to parties and get food for free. Which, what <laughs> is so great about this movie is, despite all the trappings it has of the tuxedos and of the high-minded philosophy, it really does hammer home that these are just New York City kids. And it really does capture that aspect of being a young person in a more upper-class version of New York City, where... You kind of go around acting like you're an owner of things and you're a part of the fabric of the city, but really you're in this ridiculous bubble and nothing is as it seems. They're all hanging out in these apartments, but what they don't show and what as a kid you don't see a lot of the times, but it's there, is that their parents are in the other room and that they don't actually have any agency in a lot of this. They're just kids. And something I was afraid of this movie being was just this ridiculous takedown of kids in tuxedos. But it actually does a really good job of capturing the spirit of like, yeah, these are rich kids, but they're all just playing pretend in a way. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's never it's almost never made textually explicit, but it's apparent pretty much from the very first gathering that they are in the fake it until you make it stage of their lives, that they are imitating what they think they're supposed to be doing. It's really wonderfully done. Yeah. I was surprised there wasn't a scene where one of them gets taken down a peg. The only parent we really see is Tom's parent, but she's pretty hands off. But I was surprised we didn't get a scene where one of their parents comes home and there's that interaction. Mom, get out of here. Like, we're in tuxedos. <laughs> right in the strip poker game? Yeah, something like that. Because that is what the movie was kind of missing. But maybe it's stronger for not having something like that. The other part of, like, coming of age that this captures so well is the role that friends have in shaping our perception of society's boundaries. Throughout the movie, we see characters sort of testing adult behaviors and trying to figure out what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do and judging that based off the reactions of their friends. It's a really great friendship movie, not because these are the best friends ever. They're clearly not, but because they are so iconic of the way that those relationships change us for the rest of our lives. Let's talk about Nick. I feel like he's really important to all of that. I'm a huge, huge Nick fan, huge Nick fan. <laughs> 
I was with Nick from the very beginning. I loved him. What about you? Uh, Nick is so funny because he's like, he's the one who invites Tom in. And since Tom's our perspective character, we're kind of already on board with him. He's the one that gets Tom to be accepted. He's the most willing to befriend Tom and to trust Tom, even though he's an outsider. But then he also becomes the most toxic person in the group. Um, and he, more than anyone, is the wedge that drives the group apart. And the movie, I think, does a, a really good job of that subtle shift where he's this, like, I like the term you used, good lad. He's a good lad, you know? He's, he's generous and friendly and funny and witty, but he's also everything that Jane says about him. Arrogant and hypocritical and misogynistic to a fault highly judgmental of other people when we have seen no evidence to support it. Yeah. I guess I got kind of hung up on him taking down Van Slokner because he, he does lie about it. He makes up a composite character, but then it seems like things actually did happen. And maybe in a way he was just protecting the victim's names by making up a different person. I don't know. Yeah. The movie definitely never makes that clear. And like I said, when he waves them goodbye and gives Tom his top hat, oh, what a great symbol that is. Let me give you my top <laughs> hat. Um, uh, I, I really do feel sad to see him go, even though I think he is not a great person. And I think everything Jane says about him is absolutely true. Yeah, it's true. He's he's a little bit of trouble, but I think as much as he's a wedge in the friend group, he's also the one that's keeping it together. He's the one who's most excited about everything. And once he's gone, that's when everything falls apart. So, I don't know. I'd hang. Should we talk about Jane? I, I feel like we've name-dropped her a few times. Jane's like my secret favorite of the group. Is she the girl who ends up at the party at the end? No. She's the, the dark-haired one with the long dark hair who goes on the date. The one who takes down Nick. And Audrey's best yeah, friend. Yeah, she's pretty great. She's very confident. She's the one who's like the most ready to move on. Jane's big sin is when she outs Tom's lack of feelings for Audrey, which is a pretty manipulative move. But by the end, she's the one who seems to be like the most adult. Um, and I just kind of loved her for it because she's not, she's never cruel about it except for in that one moment. And then should we talk about Audrey? She's the love interest for Tom. If you had to say like what the spine of the movie was, it's really, it's like Tom and Audrey's relationship. Yeah. She's clearly infatuated at the beginning when she first meets him. We learn going back even further, potentially. Yeah. There's this whole history with Tom and his ex-girlfriend and letters that have been written. And it's, it's all very complicated. But essentially, Audrey fell in love with Tom via his letters to his girlfriend. Or maybe just thought the letters were worth saving. And then once he met, once she met him, fell in love with him. Audrey has the opposite trajectory of Nick for me, where at the beginning I'm like, oh, she is everything I hated about myself in high school. Too scared to talk to the people you care about, too uh, self-conscious to uh, thrive in this kind of social environment. But by the time we get to that last scene, everything that this actress Carolyn Farina is doing at the Von Sloniker party, the look on her face and the slight grin she has seeing Tom there, I just, I fall in love with her in that scene. She's so good in that scene. 
that it's like her character just like rockets up. Yeah, and then she's so cool by the end of it. He's like, "Why did you go?" And she's like, "I wanted a suntan." He's like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> right. like, she's learned to just like kind of to stop taking everything so seriously and to and to recognize the feelings of other people in a way that I just it was such a good character arc and the performance was so winning in that final scene. Okay, let's talk about Charlie. Taylor Nichols, performer playing him. Oh my god, Charlie. He is very concerned with his status, I guess. He's he's over-intellectualizing his own future. He's worried about not achieving anything in his life and just resting on his money, basically. His whole thing is that he is so terrified when he looks at the possibility of failure that he has developed an entire worldview that says he is doomed to fail. There is no chance of success. And he spends every party telling his friends about this philosophy to see if they accept it or not. To see, test it. To see if it makes sense. Oh, God. I loved Charlie. Which is such a authentic worldview I think a lot of people have. Is that no matter what they do, they're doomed to fail. Because it takes it takes any agency off of yourself to have to do anything. It just means that now I get to just do whatever I want, basically, because I have no I've set zero expectations for myself. And this goes beyond just the children of the upper class. This is anyone. You just are saying to yourself, I'm this is my destiny, so I don't have to do anything anymore. Uh, and it's 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 sad because it is possible to rise above your preconceived destiny for yourself you just kind of have to do shit like and i i think it's a really cool character to have in a movie like this if you want to talk about like my top moments in the movie the discussion that he and tom have with the man in the bar where they, they find like this older preppy dude and they're telling him about how they see the world and he's like no it's not about being doomed to failure it's just about failing and it's so beautiful. And the denial that they experience as they walk out of the bar. It's wonderful. It's such a good scene. That scene also struck a chord with me just because it's so authentic that two rich kids would walk into some bar on the Upper East Side and some guy would actually have a fucking conversation with them. Like, that guy's probably drunk. He's probably coming home <laughs> from work, having a drink at the local watering hole for rich people. And he's just like, I'll talk to these two kids. Screw it. Like, it, it's so perfect. Such a great New York City little thing that I could see happening a million times. So these characters, along with three others, Cynthia, who's the one who goes to Von Sloniker's party at the end. Fred, who's the drunk who's always sleeping and then sobers up at the end, who looks so much like a younger version of that guy on Mad Men. He does. The artist on yeah. Mad Men. The annoying guy. And uh, uh, Sally Fowler, who hosts their parties and gives them their name. They are the uh, the Sally Fowler Rat Pack, the SFRP. You always got to have your friend who's got the free house. That's key for the New York <laughs> City, for the, really any teenager group of hangouts. It's like, who's, whose house are we going to? So it's the Sally Fowler house. The other characters we probably should talk about are Serena and Von Sloniker. Yeah, Serena has a reputation of sorts being a woman of many men but it seems sort of like she's 
created that reputation for herself beyond just like hooking up with lots of people. It's like she's sort of put on this air of like having a bunch of boyfriends all at the same time and maybe didn't even necessarily get with all of them. The movie does this several times with several different peripheral characters like Serena, like Von Sloniker, where we are given our the SFRP's perspective on them, our main character's perspective on them, which is usually very unbecoming. And then maybe we get a little bit of evidence to that fact. Maybe we get a little bit of evidence to the contrary, but we're never really sure how much of what these kids say about these other people are true. Yeah. But I think that the, uh, the most damning Serena scene and one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie, because it exists entirely within the space of a cut is when Serena runs into Audrey on the steps of the cathedral before Christmas Eve mass. And they say hello. And then we cut into the cathedral and Audrey is crying. And we have no idea what Serena said to Audrey, but we know it has something to do with the fact that she and Tom, who were once an item, have gotten back together. Ah, yes. And that Serena, who was the one who instigated that conversation, almost certainly was the one to bring it up. And probably because she knew it would hurt Audrey. And it all exists in your imagination because we don't get any of that. It is like perfect Soviet style filmmaking. (laughs) All the meaning existing in the cut of two images and the relationship they have to each other. But what if Audrey was just crying at the love of Jesus? That could also be the case. We don't know. She was just so happy he was born. Overcome with joy for Jesus. Probably not. No, I I think it's it's pretty clear. Von Sloniker, I think, I believe what Nick was selling about him. He sucks. He's terrible. He walks into that party, and he's just such a jerk to everyone. The way he carries himself, he's a jerk. He's he's a baron. He's the only titled aristocrat. He had the panties on the lawn, and then they said they just buy pants. Like, what was that all about? Right. Then Audrey has that amazing line where she's like, they just buy panties and throw them on the lawn to make it look like they're partying harder. All right. Maybe he's not that bad. I don't know. I didn't trust the guy. I think he's in the same boat as everybody else, trying to figure out how to exist in the world and with his title and with his affluence and his privilege and failing miserably at it. Like they all are. He is violent though. He punches two different people. Yeah. His failure is dangerous and toxic and violent and destructive, but there was a version of him that didn't turn out that way. Got it. He's just listening to too much rock music in the basement. (laughs) I don't know. He's growing his hair too long. Gotta cut that hair. He is, yeah, I've definitely seen that guy before. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> I'm a baron, but I don't even give a shit. Like, uh That final scene is so good for so many reasons, but one of them is that when he hits Nick at the party earlier, when he confronts Nick about all of the terrible things that Nick says about him, I'm almost on his side, because this is like Nick's low point, when he's been exposed as a liar and a hypocrite and somebody who's fabricated terrible terrible rumors about this man Mm. that when he hits him, I'm like, God, was that justified? And then the movie's like, well, hold on. Everybody's got their problems. Everybody's got their sins. Don't you think the implication was that Nick did have an actual story that didn't because you saw his reaction to that story. It seemed like he was trying to defend himself to a crazy degree. It, it, It certainly reads that way. But then again, the fabrication is so high school. Mm that 
emotional manipulation could lead to suicide. You know, it's like a 13 reasons why, you know, that does happen. And it's really tragic when it does, but it's also very much in the sort of heightened melodrama of being a teenager where you believe that kind of thing is possible. And that kind of thing doesn't happen that often. Fair enough. Yeah. There's, there's two sides or three or four sides to every story. So what are you going to do? The good news is, is that Audrey in the end does get, should I use the word rescued from Von Sloniker's party? But the, the scene again, which I love so much makes it clear. She was in absolutely no need of being rescued. Yeah. She's doing fine. She's just reading a book. She's literally reading a book at the party. The, the, the movie culminates with Tom realizing that he also has feelings for Audrey. He and Charlie, the last of the SFRP still together, and Charlie, who also has feelings for Audrey, trying to figure out how to get to Von Sloniker's house in the Hamptons to rescue Audrey from this terrible, terrible man. They literally think they're going to walk in and Von Sloniker is going to be like about to violate Audrey. That's how they are looking at it's, it. That's how it's presented. Yeah. And they walk into this room and Audrey is just lying there having a perfectly reasonable, if slightly uncomfortable time with her shirtless friend and these two shirtless dudes under no threat from them. And they are so annoyed by her very presence because she is such a wet blanket to them that it's clear that she basically diffused any fun that they had wanted to have in the first place. She is the one who defeats Von Slotiker, not anybody else. And she's happy to see that her buddies have come to see her. I, she's clearly very touched that they thought it was necessary and that they would make the effort to come all the way out there. And that Tom is finally showing her the affection that she clearly deserves. I love that scene so much. It's a good scene. It I was reminded a lot of House Party. I feel like this would make a pretty good double feature with House Party where it's like, the young friends that you have at that age and the thing, the ones that kind of suck, the ones that come through for you in the end. Like, I think it's a good, and it's such a flip side to the house party coin where in house party, <laughs> literally they're just like, let's have a party and dance. And there's no long winded conversations, but here they're dancing too. It's, it's all very funny. Particularly to the cha cha cha. I wanted to say a few things about New York since this is such a good New York young people movie, the uh, apartment that Tom lives in is perfect. He lives on the west side, upper west side, I'm sure. And everyone else is on the upper east side. And I've lived this existence where you have friends living on the upper east side and the west side, and it there is a difference, and they nail it. Those big salon east side apartments and then you go to your west side apartment and it's a little more it's a little more cramped, but also just the general style is a little more city utilitarian. And it's still like these really nice apartments, but just the time in which they were built is different. And for the the class of people they were built for, a lot of those upper west side apartments were built in like the 1910s, 1920s for pretty upper class, well-to-do families that would have like a live-in nanny that would live in a room in the back. And, but they do not compare to these insane apartments on the Upper East Side where there's like the powder room and the sitting room and the other room when it's like a five bedroom apartment. But it's just so on the nose that he's living in the maid's quarters of that 
apartment because he's got the little sink next to his bed and it's the shittiest room in the apartment. So clearly it's like they're living in a two bedroom that's been converted from what was probably used to be a three or four bedroom, but they're using one of the maid's quarters as a bedroom now. And it just sucks. So (laughs) that was perfect. Also the city kids failing to rent a car is just so good. <laughs> the reveal that neither of them have a license. Yep, it's per it's on the money. City people are so fucking helpless in getting out of the city. <laughs> it's just so great. They just oh, a car? Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's it's perfect. And there's no good public transportation to just get them there. Like it's it's unreal. So that scene shouldn't work, right? That sequence cuz it comes between our characters revealing what the stakes of the third act are, they have to rescue Audrey and them actually going to rescue her. And it should just be a bunch of dead air where they're trying to figure out how to get there. But it's so funny. The whole sequence is so funny. Not being able to use the charge card, not being able to rent the car, not having a license, settling on the cab. It's, it's great. When they reveal those subtle touches of like, they are in scuzzy New York. Because most of this movie, the exteriors you're seeing are really nice apartment blocks or the Plaza Hotel. But then they cut to, like, fucking Avis on, like, 43rd Street. And you're like, (laughs) oh, right, they're still in New York City. It's a shithole. I love that. One other thing I really quickly wanted to mention was just comparing this to other City Kid movies of the time. The biggest example being Kids, which is a 1995 Larry Clark movie. And written by uh, Harmony Corrine, who did Spring Spring Breakers. And it's just like the complete and total opposite of this movie. Those kids are just doing drugs, having sex. And it's just so funny to think of these two worlds existing at the same time. (laughs) So check out Kids as the double feature. Well, that probably covers all the things I really wanted to talk about. Yeah. Good movie. Should we wrap things up? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd recommend watching this movie. It's it's a fun, smart, interesting movie filled with some pretty great characters. It really is incredible how the movie operates. When it starts, I just, I feel nothing but disdain for the problems of these privileged people. The first time Charlie opens his mouth and is like, I think the problem with the upper class is that we're totally doomed and downward social mobility is the great threat to our lives. And we are probably going to wind up failures. I'm like, good. (laughs) You deserve none of this. You have not earned any of it. And yet by the end of the movie, I love basically all these people. Yeah. They're good people. Cause they're just human beings trying to figure out how to be alive in this stupid fucked up world that we live in. Which I just have, I mean, it's the ultimate, you know, like, human story. That's that's the most engaging thing that a human being can do is try to figure out how to be themselves. This is also just an underrated teen movie. This never gets mentioned, but it's a good one. We didn't put it on our One Crazy Night rankings, because technically it's like 10 nights. Yeah, but it's it's it fits in. What's crazy, too, is the is like those movies, this, this entire story takes place within like a 10-day span. And yet it feels like a lifetime to these characters. Tom, who had never met them prior to the first night, is so invested in the end of this group. Yeah. 
It's the way that when you're young, every just everything seems like it's the most important thing in the world. Very, very sleeper teenager movie. Uh, comparing this to other stuff too, I, the other thing I just wanted to mention is this is the second week in a row that I have been reminded of Buster in Arrested Development <laughs> because he is like these people in the 21st century. He's the son of an affluent family who just kind of wants to wallow away in academia and doesn't know how to be an adult human being <laughs> and stuck in Arrested Development like some of these kids are. Um, but he's just such a more pathetic person, but I just, there's a different version of this movie where they're all busters. That's the 2020 version for sure. Let's talk about the legacy. Yeah. So the budget, which I up front, I mentioned this movie had a pittance of a budget, $225,000, not even a million quarter of a million dollars. Pretty cheap. It opened August 3rd in limited release. Of course, no international release goes on to gross 2.9 million total domestically. I could not find an opening weekend. So that's actually a, a pretty reasonable success right there. That's a good multiplier. Yeah. Turns out if you make a good movie cheaply and people get a chance to see it, it usually makes its money back. And then some. Uh, and it also gets nominated for Best Original Screenplay at the Oscars. That's pretty impressive for this kind of movie. I think a very deserved nomination. Absolutely. The writing is great. I'm just surprised that a movie this small would make it that far. I feel like the Academy would normally wait for his next movie. See if he can like up the ante a little bit, even if it's not as well written. It's just like more money behind it. But for such a tiny little movie to get such an awesome nomination, it's pretty cool. So I don't know if we're going to do this later as like its own episode if we want to do this right now. But I just kind of wanted to compare this to some of the other screenplay nominations and, and see where we think it fell. Other nominees. And we don't have plans to watch any of these movies, which maybe is a problem. Alice, Woody Allen's film. Avalon, the Barry Levinson movie that we talked about with Ian. Ian's favorite movie. Yeah. Uh, Green Card, a Peter Weir movie. I do love Peter Weir. Metropolitan. And the winner was Ghost. Ghost! Hell yeah. This clearly has a better <laughs> screenplay than Ghost. Wait, Ghost won best screenplay? That's amazing. Ghost won best <laughs> screenplay. That's kind of awesome, I gotta admit. But yeah, this has better writing. For sure. I would say this is one of my favorite written movies I've seen in, in a while. Yeah. It's it's very well spoken. And accessible. And accessible. It's not just the dialogue. There's a lot of really, really proficient technical stuff happening that keeps the narrative flowing in a really difficult set of circumstances. I cannot imagine sitting down to write this movie and having it come out this clear and legible and, and arcing. But it doesn't have yuppie murder. <laughs> it doesn't have ghost physics. I want to ask you a question. After Nick's farewell, we never see him again. Do you think his stepmother killed him? <laughs> no. This is why. This is also why I tend not to... I'm less sure than you are that there is a true Von Sloniker story. It's because everything he says about his stepmom is also ridiculous. Mm. He's telling Tom that his stepmother, who has invited him to stay with them, is going to murder him. He was kidding. Nick he is, is overdramatic, and he says it multiple times. He was He's always, you know, he, he's, he's apparently, you know, a pathological liar. Maybe, like, I, I think that the Seagal episode will come out. Maybe 
in the same way that you might be susceptible to like those dojo people, like I might be a little too susceptible to like <laughs> slick, fast talking, charming liars who are like pretending to lift you up but are secretly toxic. Maybe that's my kryptonite. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I also loved Nick. And as I've said like two or three times now, I was sad to see him go. But deep down, you're kind of like, I don't trust him. But deep down, I'm like, that's probably an unhealthy <laughs> relationship. And it's probably good for Tom that they're not hanging out anymore. See, I was more like, oh, what a good guy. He really helped Tom out. <laughs> anyway, I think he died. What I, one of the things I really appreciate is the person who helps Tom out most is Tom. Mm. He gets friends who support him. Jane gives him a push at the right moment. Nick certainly gives him a push at the right moment. Even Charlie does. But ultimately, Tom is the one who has to figure out Tom. Totally. So let's talk about some 90s themes to wrap it all up. This is a major player in the burgeoning indie cinema movement. We talked about this a little bit already with Spike Lee and a lot with House Party. Another good comparison between those two movies. Uh, But one of the most important things happening in the industry in 1990 is the rise in prominence of independent cinema, which would come to define the coming decade and really change the paradigm. Yeah, and this movie also just feels so at home with a lot of those traditional 90s movies that we see come a few years later, like where it's just people talking. Linklater, Linklater did this crazily. Slacker is just people having random conversations. Before Sunrise in 95 or 94, it's just two kids falling in love in one night, but it's all just talking. Nothing actually happens. And then Clerks, which was huge. Clerks is a big one. Even Tarantino, who's like the biggest indie success, the strength of his movies is their hangout vibe. Yeah, just the talking. He just pairs it with more of like a grindhouse aesthetic and slightly higher concept plots. Because it goes further than a lot of the indie cinema that you'd see in like the 60s, which was radical at the time. But it's a little bit more just like people dancing, people like just doing crazy things with editing, like doing crazy things with changing the structure of movies. But a lot of them weren't just like people being cool and talking for a long time. If you're looking for a real origin point for that, I think it would be Jim Jarmusch, who's got a big few breakout films before this comes out and then this kind of solidifies it i mean woody allen's there too but he's working within the studio system in his own way yeah and that type of movie just has not been able to keep grabbing audiences because now we just live in a world where you gotta get people's attention i'm surprised though that there aren't more movies like that made on super cheap budgets that they can just throw on netflix and see what happens I know it's funny, 1990 and the decade becomes this great moment for independent cinema because new technologies make it more democratic and accessible. And yet, when today it's even more accessible and democratic, I feel like independent cinema has become less diverse. Well, yeah, because you have to grab people's attention because there's so many competing services that you could have a movie on. Yeah, it's just like getting lost in the noise. Also... In a way, you you still can get long-winded conversations of people talking. It's just podcasts or YouTube videos. Right. It's it's moved to a new spot. But it, it's interesting. I like your point there, and I think that's very astute, that if you were able to make a film independently in 1990 and it got picked up, it would 
be platformed like a normal film, pretty much. Uh, and, and once you had made it through, through past the gatekeepers, they would make your movie scene. But now that we have not just democratized the making of the movies, but the distribution of the films as well, it becomes a lot harder to get seen. Yeah, and also just to get put on there in the first place, you kind of have to reel people in with some kind of hook. Got to play to the algorithms. Yeah, exactly. Would Metropolitan ever show up in the algorithm on Netflix? I don't know. Well, what I think is crazy is that like this is like going to be a staple of the Criterion channel, right? This is not a movie that's going to rotate out. And to me, that says that like this is not a movie that they see as an attention grabber. Because you want those movies to debut on, on, on the system to get people excited and then to leave to make sure that they join. So even within the highfalutin world of Criterion, this is kind of like a, a, a day player. Yeah, well, it, it that also has a lot to do with distribution rights. And I'm sure Whit Stillman is like, sign me for 10 years, please. You can have this movie. Here's my here's my soul. As long as you put it on the channel, thank you. Look, I made enough money to buy my apartment back. I I'm good. I I have a feeling Wit and the Criterion board members are are pretty close in a way that they might not be with, you know, <laughs> Martin Scorsese or whatever. All right, few other '90s themes I wanted to talk about. Um, the way this movie romanticizes old money and like existing aristocracies. I wonder if you could read that as another jab at new money yuppies. This is like a, a different perspective on the Richard Gere character in as a bad guy in pretty woman. To me, it was more just Stillman coming to terms with his own background. Like I, I didn't see this as like a, a takedown or I don't know. It, it just seemed like it came from his own life experience. Right. They're not mutually exclusive. Romanticizing one world does not denigrate the other. Yeah. That's how I felt about it. Because clearly the yuppie thing was big at the time. And we've seen it in so many movies. But this seems a little bit more personal. The fact that it is set in sort of a non-existent past, uh, a, a recent past that is feels like a more distant past, uh, certainly makes it feel less immediate to the experience of 1990. The last thing I wanted to talk about was Audrey. We talked about this already about some of the issues with representation of women in the movies we've been watching. Uh, we talked about it. I think a lot on our, what episode was that? Our, our, she, our Mo better blues mm, episode. Yeah. Um, and I, I had a slight problem with Audrey being, the quest, if you will, because she is so demure and so subservient. She's the one always carrying the dishes to the kitchen. And she is the one whose feelings are not recognized. And it's ultimately Tom who has to make the choice for them to be together and not the other way around. And so to have her be the prize, you know, and even the fact that I can use that term is pretty gross is sort of problematic. I mean, this movie is made from the perspective of an affluent white man. And that's very clear in the lack of representation for most other 
creeds and races and particularly in the way it portrays women. I yeah. Feel like. It's way more concerned with the feelings in a three-dimensional way of the men for Audrey. It's just like, she likes Tom. She found out Tom's with this other girl. So now she's sad, but it's okay. It's one of the things that I really like about that final scene is like, I feel like it's the scene where Audrey gets the most like interiority to play. She gets the most independent life, even though it's in response to the actions of Tom. She's so independent in that moment of her environment that it's really uplifting. Um, but I want to call that out because I'm starting to feel like that's a real problem with 1990. It's a real problem with 2020, man. It's a problem with like humanity. <laughs> but we should still identify it and call it out when we see it. Absolutely. So that's Metropolitan. Great movie. Check it out. I had a great time. I'm really glad we got to rewatch it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I was worried you might not. I ride for it. I'm sorry that, that my fiance did not. I thought she was. I told her, I was like, we, we delayed it for like three days so that she could watch it with me. And I'm like, you're really going to like this movie. <laughs> and in the end, she was like, why did you think I would like that movie? Oh, man. She's not a bourgeoisie elite like we are. <laughs> it's a good one. Uh, yeah, she was less amused by the discussions of, of French agrarian <laughs> socialism. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow us on social media at BTTMPod on Instagram and Twitter. Email us at BTTMPod at gmail.com. At us on Twitter. At us at Twitter. Say something. Say hi. We really want to know that you're out there and that you're listening. Thank you to Andy Gagnon for our music. And yeah, that's it. Join us next week for another episode. Yes. For Back to the Movies, I'm Nat. And I'm Ben. And we'll see you next week when we go back to the movies. Uh, let's get out of here. We will go to my house now. <laughs> as, a, as some gin and tonic and uh, just discuss the state of uh, our futures as men of influence.